Welcome to Deal Us In, a podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods and Seven Mile Advisors. Deal Us In promotes the advancement of women in private equity and finance through conversations with women leaders and rising stars in the private equity and finance space. These conversations provide both insights and practical takeaways to inform your deal work and enhance the culture of your organization. If you're ready to drive the industry toward a more inclusive and diverse environment, then it's time to come to the table. Welcome back to Deal Us In, a women in private equity and finance podcast presented by McGuire Woods and Seven Mile Advisors. I'm Anne, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Ariel. Stay-at-home orders and social distancing has created a volatile landscape for deal-making. In today's episode of Deal Us In, we're going to talk about strategies to successfully navigate logistics and to manage deal risk. Joining us in that discussion is Amber Walsh, a partner at McGuire Woods and chair of McGuire Woods Healthcare Practice. Amber is also the energetic co-leader of McGuire Woods Women in Private Equity and Finance Initiative. We're talking with Amber today because Amber has been working remotely for many years and has obviously done so successfully. Before we start the Q&A, Amber, tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. Thank you, Anne, and thanks for having me on, Anne and Ariel. As you mentioned, I lead the healthcare group at McGuire Woods, and our group and my practice in particular are heavily focused on transactional and compliance matters for healthcare companies and their investors. As you mentioned, I am also the chair of the Women in Private Equity Initiative, founded because of our really significant volume of work on behalf of investors, be it both private equity and lenders into the space. Thanks, Amber. So before we get started with today's conversation around the two key themes that most people are curious about in terms of deal-making these days, um, especially during the volatile times, let me just ask, are deals still getting done? I think absolutely, yes. They are different. They are on a different time frame, and certainly it's lower volume. It is absolutely true that certainly in mid-March and into early April, there was a bit of a pressing pause. Certainly, there have been deals that have died and will probably never be revived. However, I also feel that investors, buyers, sellers all seem to be moving past the initial shock of the pandemic. They're recognizing that this crisis is going to last for some time, and they still desire to execute on their growth strategy. So they are refocusing now on deal-making, but in a different climate, and really spending a lot of time thinking through our two key themes of creative ways that they can still get deals done, but also in a way that properly balances risk for all participants. Yeah, I would agree, Amber. That's been exactly my experience. A lot of deals went pencils down, and now the pencils are being picked back up. But with that said, there is obviously a difference in terms of what the clients are looking at and different concerns than they ever even thought about when when the deal first popped up. Agree. Kind of over on the advisory side. We are seeing that deals are still happening. Like Amber mentioned, the quantity is certainly down. Anyone who follows deal-making newsletters or coverage of any kind 
can see that very clearly, um, especially over the last four to six weeks, there's been a decline. But more anecdotally, in terms of what we're seeing with our clients, I would say, you know, buyers are still interested and sellers are still interested. So I think some of the issues that we're running into short term are just that they are going to be some short term issues. So while the landscape is looking a bit different these days, I don't think I see anything, you know, screeching to a halt to where it's going to take too much ramp up time uh, to kind of get back to a higher volume of deals. I think it's just going to be a bit of a change in the process and definitely a change in the timelines, unfortunately. Yeah, thinking about process, let's turn to the first theme of managing the logistics and deal making from home. Amber, tell us about your history of working from home and how you've made those connections so successful. Sure, absolutely. So I have actually been working from home for 13 of my 18 years of law practice. Now, working from home for me until six weeks ago also included traveling a significant amount of time. And I'll come back to that point in a minute about why that has been so critically important for maintaining connections with my clients and with my team. But that really started 13 years ago, frankly, due to the the vision and the innovative thinking of one of my mentors for my career, Scott Becker, who at the time was the chair of the healthcare group. But the firm also was incredibly supportive and helped invest in me as a young associate who was going through a period of time in my life transitioning to being a new mother and moving, and it was the firm's and Scott's innovative thinking and a recognition that making an investment in talent is really important for the firm. And I was a bit of a test case. There have since been several of our colleagues who have done the same thing as I have, largely worked remotely, but it really is something that until six weeks ago remains incredibly uncommon within the legal industry. The legal industry has really been founded on traditional office space. We invest in brick and mortar offices. Our people come to the office and do their work with their teams in their offices. And that really hasn't changed much throughout the industry in the past 13 years. Now, of course, like every other industry, that may change after we come out of this pandemic in more permanent ways that until this pandemic, the legal industry simply wasn't prepared for but now I think is going to be embracing it in new and unique ways. Yeah, so obviously you've had many years to wrap your head around how to successfully work from home, but I guess in the last couple weeks, do you have any tips for people who are now having to deal make from home where, you know, the rest of the deal team is actually remote as well? Yeah, absolutely. So there are a couple of driving principles that I had to kind of figure out the hard way 13 years ago and certainly did so because I had a really supportive team, um, largely in our Chicago office, but elsewhere around the firm. But I really quickly realized that there were three key 
skill sets or maybe a better said driving principles that someone who is working remotely needs to be mindful of. The first is self-discipline. It is still a job and you still have to get up, have a space to work and treat it as a job, not just I'm dialing in for an hour here and there as needed in what is otherwise a vacation. And I won't go into extensive tips about technology and setting up your office. There's been a lot of webinars, writing, tips shared globally about that. But I would distill it all down to whatever you're going to do, be disciplined about it. That's the first theme or principle. The second is planning. You have to pre-plan your day, your opportunity to negotiate a purchase agreement by phone, your drafting. You have to plan more when working remotely than you do when you have the luxury of being in person. The difference being, if you are going to be getting on a diligence call, for example, remotely, where you've got five people dialing in from five different home-based locations, that is a very different dynamic than when you are all sitting in one room together and you have the opportunity to be on mute, scribble notes to one another, have eye contact to cue what questions you as buyer's counsel want to pose to the acquisition target. That's just one example of why planning is hypercritical. But moving on to the third principle, being flexible also is more important than ever because you will have to flex. Things will go wrong. You'll have technology issues. You'll have noise issues. Things will simply happen and you're going to have to be prepared to flex and not let it unravel your plan entirely. That's happening more than ever now. And even myself, someone who has worked from home in this way and gotten deals done successfully for 13 years, it's different for me now, too, because now two big changes have happened. My entire team and client base are now also remote, which is very different. So they are experiencing these things themselves, but also... People who are doing this don't have the luxury of doing it in the same environment in which I have worked for the past 13 years. They're doing it in an environment where their spouses may also be home. They may have parents that they are living with or who are living with them, children that they have to homeschool, and the general anxiety and fear of the economy and health concerns going on around them. So, I won't remotely pretend that what I have been able to do for the past 13 years is synonymous with what people are facing right now. Yep, and obviously as a senior member of McGuire Woods and an obvious mentor through a couple different initiatives that you're a part of, leadership is, is a big piece of your role. How have you been able to maintain a position as a leader in the firm and as a mentor in the firm navigating the fact that you're not in the office and in front of some of these more junior associates every day? So just like with doing more planning, more effort needs to be made to stay in connection 
with clients and colleagues more than ever. And there are a couple of ways that I'm extending myself beyond just what I am personally doing. So what I am personally doing, I'll address that first, is more frequent calls, check-ins, touch bases with individuals. It is very helpful. It's rewarding. It's uplifting to do Zoom happy hours, which are now much more of a thing and a very fun way for people to stay connected. But if those happy hours are too large, people still get lost in them, and you're not able to check in on somebody more closely. So we have been downsizing our Zoom happy hours. We have within the healthcare group, we have a roughly 60 attorneys. So we've been doing those instead of putting 60 people on a happy hour, put those that were otherwise working in a particular McGuire Woods office. So we have the Chicago healthcare group that we just had last night again. And then the Charlotte healthcare group, those kind of downsizing with the people that you were otherwise in the office with helps it feel a little bit more normal. But then, as I mentioned, the individual check-ins are also really important to make sure that people are simply doing okay. But I mentioned earlier the concept of extending myself. It has certainly always been the case that there have been a multitude of leaders within the healthcare group at McGuire Woods and within the private equity group at McGuire Woods. It's never been just me. We are very much a team of leaders, and there are many people who have really stepped up and taken on individual responsibility for their colleagues to make sure that they are okay. And in some ways, I have tapped them and asked them to please do this. Please be the person, for example, that on a daily basis insert some levity into the day, be it through a a joke, be it through a group sharing of funny photos from your home. What are you looking at right now on your desk? Funny things like that. So I've got a colleague, Gretchen Townsend, who in particular is spending time doing that. But there's a lot of things where I've simply encouraged people, don't wait for me to appoint you. We all have great ideas of ways to stay connected. And if you have a great idea, just do it. They are empowered to do whatever it takes to stay together. So while I am mindful of my responsibility, and I think, Ariel, as you said, now more than ever, I feel even more responsible for every single one of my colleagues' well-being. I am very pleased that we have an environment within the group where everyone understands and feels that they are also responsible and empowered to act on their ideas. Yep. So kind of going back to an earlier thing we were talking about, you know, the the deal-making from home, just because I think everyone understands that the nature of this industry is that it's 24-7, it's go-go-go, you're always having to be connected and have technology. And like you said, there's a lot of variables that are just really tough to control right now. But I think what we see is as long as people are kind of going back to that core process that has always worked for deals, we're really continuing to see some of the deal steps and the deal process continue to move forward. So what are you seeing from your vantage point in terms of how the logistics of a deal-making process have had to start to change a bit? Sure. Well, what's interesting is that deal-making really had changed a lot 
even in my 18 years of practice, and certainly, you know, every few years, deal-making had become more and more remote, and frankly, more and more rapid-paced. That remoteness, that use of technology allows deals to move faster. So in many ways, what's happening now and deals being able to be closed right now is accomplished because of the foundation that's been built for the past many years where no longer are you doing in-person signings. More comfort around electronic signature products like DocuSign. However, despite the advancements that deal-making had made over the past many years in allowing this efficient and remote implementation of different deal stages, there always were steps in certain types of deals that were done in person. And I know, Ariel, you've had different experiences from the transaction advisor standpoint um, where we sit at the lawyers and with our clients doing risk assessment. One example is deal diligence. There was always a component that many buyers felt were critical to do in person physical plant inspections, simply meeting their future partners in person, making sure that they could look across the table into the eyes of the executives that they were going to be relying on going forward, HR components that were important to be done in person. There were numerous parts of the deal that continued to be done in person in part to assess risk, and that is changing now. We are no longer able to do that in the same way. So what we are seeing is many buyers are seeking to, frankly, eliminate or modify those steps of the deal, but focusing on other parts of the deal where there may be different types of risks, such as pricing. And we'll talk about that in a minute when we talk about that second theme of risk management. The other thing we're seeing people do right now is using more third parties to assist in diligence. So this is a change as you are evolving between the ability of your own buy side team to assess an acquisition target, moving towards putting that on third parties. Third parties such as valuation companies, and CPA firms and consulting firms, HR consulting firms, who have a different level of experience and an ability to assess an acquisition target through documentation rather than through that human interaction. And that's an interesting transition that I think we will continue to see that touches on both of our key themes of getting a deal done, but also risk management. Yes, and from the um, investment banking perspective, what we're seeing right now is that, in general, we're able to move along virtually up until a point. Like you said, so much of deal-making had moved to virtual, digital, however you best want to describe it, just because of the advancement in technologies and also just because there's always been a geographic distance between buyers, sellers, and advisors. It never really made sense to have all of the meetings or all of the calls in person just because 
of the ease of hopping on a conference call or Zoom call um, or being able to share information via email or data rooms. So what we're seeing is that up until the management presentation point, we're really able to continue, for lack of a better word, business as usual. We can move our kickoff meetings to being kickoff calls. We can take all of the marketing materials for review digitally. We can move all the way through a process, really even through early stage management calls without ever having to be in person. And what we're seeing now is that we're even able to take that next step of doing virtual management presentations, which is something new for our firm. We're very process oriented and that's really been an important piece of our process is bringing buyers and sellers to the same table at that point in the transaction process. So we've been pleasantly surprised with how easily we've been able to shift even that piece of the process to a digital format. I think kind of as you were saying, on the back side of those presentations, that's when it really becomes a bit more important to have some face time. So I think that's going to be a place where the timelines are impacted. I don't think you're going to have digital management presentations and then get all the way to a close. I think at some point from what we're seeing with our clients, that meeting face-to-face uh, -face is going to have to take place. But in general, we're seeing that the shift to digital deal-making is much more seamless than we had anticipated, honestly. Okay, so let's shift to the second of our two themes today and talk about managing risk in a volatile mar market. So we've already talked about how traditional deal-making processes aren't possible and new risks exist. That's something that I focus my career on, risk management and assisting clients on how to manage their risk and how to successfully allocate risk. So it's something that I'm on top of. Amber, what are you seeing in the change versus unchanged risk mitigation? Sure, so separate and apart from the key risk management approach through diligence, Obviously, we know there's other risk management tools in a given deal. Starting first with the purchase agreement, we are certainly seeing new purchase agreement terms emerge. And, and what I should say before I even describe those terms is that there is no market for this that's been yet created. We are only a few weeks into this crisis, and while deals are getting done, deals are getting closed, Buyers and sellers and their advisors are grappling with a new concept of fairness and risk shifting. And unlike previous deal making, we cannot say to our client, this is off market or this is within the realm of the market. The market is being created right now. So we very well may be coming back and having a different conversation a month from now once we see new tools and approaches emerge. Once we see how acquisition targets are responding to buyers' unique pricing proposals, but I'll share with you what we are seeing be discussed and in some cases implemented and agreed upon between a buyer and closer to allocate that risk and get to the finish line. So within the purchase agreement, obviously there's been a lot of focus on MAE definitions, force majeure clauses, new reps and warranties, and new indemnity concepts that recognize that this pandemic likely 
um, will not be repeated any time in the lifetime of an indemnity clause, but it is continuing into the lifetime of this particular indemnity clause. And what I mean by that is drafting that recognizes risk allocated for the present crisis without shifting new crisis onto the seller. So that is something that you're seeing buyers and sellers and their counsel grappling with to properly shift the present versus the unknown in the future. To put a finer point on this issue of indemnity, what many sellers are grappling with is how much risk to take on in this crisis to make the buyer whole, should it continue and play out in a way that is more elaborate, longer than expected. That's a really challenging phenomenon for sellers to deal with, but that's where we're seeing people spend a lot of time in risk shifting. How much should the seller bear that if it takes longer to come out of this and bring, in the case of healthcare, their patient volumes back up? The other thing that is making that difficult for people is right now, as we are sitting here just about two days into a really concerted effort by governors to come together and take hold and and project out what it may look like to bring their states back to business. And those projections are looking long, and they are recognizing that coming back in business may not simply be, and almost certainly won't be, opening the doors. So I said a few notes about purchase price terms that were being modified and negotiated on the rep, the MAE, the force majeure, and the indemnity package. Another element that is changing all geared toward risk allocation is some transactions that previously could have been done as a simultaneous sign and close. There was no major closing condition that needed to be inserted into the deal are now becoming two-step sign and close deals. That amongst the normal collection of closing conditions that must happen between sign and close, there's now a condition that includes having the state come back in business, come back in line. Now, of course, that's a difficult definition because we are now just starting to see governors put some real meat on the bones about what that might look like. Certainly defining the condition of being past the pandemic is very difficult to do for buyers and sellers in their council because every state will probably have a slightly altered definition of what it means to be back in business. We are just now seeing governors individually in regional groupings and with the federal government starting to put some definition around what coming back online means, that makes it difficult to have a closing condition around this. But it is something that we are seeing people grapple with and start to negotiate. And I think that when we are here 
on the next episode of this podcast, a month from now, we're going to have people who have successfully inserted that into their purchase agreement. Next, we are having purchase terms that have to recognize relief program dollars, not just within healthcare, but within restaurant, hospitality, transportation, you name it, across all industries, acquisition targets are getting relief program dollars. Sometimes they are grants, sometimes they are loans, and the impact of those dollars on EBITDA, who has a right to those dollars, whether or not those dollars have to be returned to the grantor or lender in an M&A context, those are things that have to be understood and implemented into the deal terms. And then the last point I'll make is pricing. Um, Pricing to cut risk is something that is certainly getting a lot of attention right now. And again, we're in the early stages of it. But we are certainly seeing a shift towards more delayed payments in industries that allow, from a regulatory perspective, an earnout. They are doing many more earnouts in ways that sellers may not have previously accepted the risk component to the purchase price. We're seeing sellers be more open to that. We are seeing other types of escrow hold back just for the mere passage of time to make sure that there has been a bring back to business for that acquisition target prior to paying the escrowed amount. So more escrow dollars, not just for indemnity, but for actual reopening of full operations. And then we are certainly having really significant discussions around pricing when historical EBITDA is almost certainly not reflecting current EBITDA and may not reflect future EBITDA for quite a while. And that's where the valuation firms are spending a lot of time really studying the projections, working on a much more intensive fashion, and are are becoming a really, really critical part of the deal for a lot of buyers that previously may not have relied on a third-party valuation company in order to cut their own risk, in order to be able to speak to their own investors. They're relying on these third-party experts to help them project the impact on pricing which varies dramatically based on industry, based on part of the country, but they are adding a really critical additional service on the pricing component. So as we start to wrap this episode up, I'm going to pull us out of the weeds just a little bit here and kind of go back to a key question that we wanted to use to wrap up all of our different episodes for the DLSN podcast. Uh, We think it's really important on these episodes to highlight the experience that obviously the phenomenal women in private equity and finance have and can bring to the table. But we also like to humanize it a little bit just because we know that as women, being able to share some of these connections are really what builds a network that I think has the opportunity to be extremely strong and extremely valuable in terms of a professional network that we're all trying to build. I think at the end of the day, we're looking for people that we can learn from, looking for people that we can work with. And so learning a little bit more about the person that's behind some of these experiences and behind some of this knowledge, 
is really important. So I'm going to come back to that key question. Uh, if you listened to our first episode, you got a little bit of a taste for it. But we plan to close each episode with what advice would you give your 22-year-old self? So, Amber, I will throw that over to you. You can either answer it from your 22-year-old self or your post-law school self. It certainly doesn't have to be precise. But would love to hear if you could kind of go back and give yourself a little pep talk. What would that look like? Sure. Well, I would probably say the same thing to my 25-year-old self as I was starting my legal practice and then again for my roughly 30-year-old self. Because by 30, I still hadn't figured this out. And I wish I could go back and tell both of myself to expect ups and downs in your career. And what I mean by that is, even at age 30, I was under the misimpression that I had figured it all out, that yes, I may have had some ups and downs in that first couple of years of my legal practice where I was still figuring out my role on the team. I was still figuring out some new concepts. I didn't come from a family of lawyers. So I had very little understanding even of the workings of a law firm. But I was under the silly and naive thinking that at 30, I had figured it all out. I'd overcome it all. I've got this. And then I went through another period of challenges just within my own practice as it grew. And I again was faced with, I don't know this. I don't understand how this works. And now I'm quite familiar with that. In 18 years, I've had a lot of those ups and downs. The times when I feel like I'm on my A game, everything's going right. I'm rocking and rolling, I'm super engaged, and I can do no wrong. And then the times when, man, I'm just, I'm off. I'm not my best self. I'm not serving my clients as well as I want to. I'm not as engaged with my own team. I no longer feel that it's one up and then you stay up for the rest of your career. That is something that is intuitive for other people. But for me, I was kind of crushed in that second wave when I realized, oh, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs in this career. You don't just figure it out once and now you've got it. That's what I would go back and tell my 25-year-old and 30-year-old selves to just relax. It'll come back. Work through it power through, rely on your mentors, rely on your support system, and you'll figure it out in the same way that you always have, and you will be back on the upswing soon. I think that's a great point, because I think as we have new experiences and as we grow through our profession and personal life as well, you learn that there's going to be good days, and there's going to be bad days, and there's going to be okay days, and it may be two good days and a bad day. It might be five bad days in a row. It might be a lot of bad in a row and then a lot of good. But just realizing that it's not that one-to-one or, like you said, it's not going to be all good and then stay good from there. Um, And that's just kind of how life goes. I think as women working in a very demanding industry, you find that your personal life kind of impacts where you are professionally too. So it impacts if you're high or if you're low, if you're dealing with some things with kids at home or parents at home. So it definitely comes into play. 
So I think that's great perspective, especially right now when everybody's dealing with variables that we're just not used to dealing with professionally. We're used to having an office, knowing when the kids go to school, knowing when they get picked up. And right now it's just kind of turning everybody on their head. And so I think coming back to it's going to be okay and you're going to figure it out is really important. So thank you, Amber, for being with us today. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule to both prep for this episode and hop on and record with us. So for everybody that's listening, thank you for joining us as well. We encourage you to join the conversation by using our hashtag DLSNpodcast on Twitter or LinkedIn or by visiting our website at DLSNpodcast.com. As we continue to dive into these conversations, we want your voices and your questions to be heard. We have an area on our website where you can submit questions, comments, or feedback, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say. So thank you again to Amber and Anne for joining us today. And we look forward to seeing where these conversations take us in the future. Thank you for joining us at the table for this episode of DLSN. If you have a recommendation for an inspiring interviewee, a question you'd like us to ask, or a topic you would like to hear covered, or if you'd like to tell us about women-focused initiatives in the field, please go to our website at www.dlsnpodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you. 